It will come as no surprise to you that during the month of March, probably more so than any month of the year, there is likely to be a basketball game on our TV at home. I'm even, I, I don't, I, I told Dana, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I don't know if it's superstitious or, or not, but I always hesitate to wear uh, anything related to the team I'm going to be cheering for that day to church, but I'm taking a risk today with my little, my little Jayhawk pen. We'll find out later in a couple hours whether that was a good idea or, uh, or, or not. But I was thinking about March Madness. This tournament where a total of 68 teams are technically involved and, and then with each round, the, the number of teams remaining is split in half. And it, we are already down to, well, shoot, just about six teams technically remaining right now. And, and by the end of the day, there will be just four teams left as they come down to just one team. One team who is actually happy <laughs> with the outcome of uh, the March Madness NCAA Men's College Basketball Tournament. What's exciting about this tournament to me is that every game matters. The teams that I had never heard of, St. Peter's in New Jersey, this, this, small, this small school in New Jersey that's already won games, I, I'm you know, if, if somebody would have asked me, what, where is St. Peter's? I would have had no idea. There's a church, St. Peter's Church, I think, in KCK. But in terms of the, in terms of the school, I couldn't have come up with, with New Jersey. And, and even these small schools have an opportunity to, to win games and continue on in the tournament. And each game, each game comes down to a moment to a moment, and it could be at the beginning of the game, it could be at the very end of the game, it could be the last play of the game that is critical. And what, what makes basketball exciting for me in watching it, watching this tournament, is you don't know when that moment is going to occur. You don't know when the, 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 the play will be made that shifts it either to the team that you're rooting for or uh, to the team that you are rooting against. But every competition, based on the nature of competition, has in it a moment that solidifies the outcome of the contest. A critical moment. The first verse that we'll read this morning as we conclude our review of Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in John 3 is one of those critical moments. It's also extremely well known. From John 3, beginning with the 16th verse. I'm actually going to use my Bible here. Beginning with the 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Who... <coughs> Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed." 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. John 3.16, most of you probably could have come pretty close to reciting that without me reading it from Scripture. Long before Billy Graham and his great crusades of the late 20th and early 21st century, this was a familiar passage of Scripture, but but Billy Graham likely used John 3.16 as the focus of his 30-minute or so sermons during those crusades more than any other verse in the Bible. In fact, he he references learning John 3.16 as his mother when he was just a young child there in North Carolina, would, would bathe him on Saturday nights. She would use that time to help him learn Scripture. And he said that that was one of the first verses that he could ever remember learning. And over and over and over again, probably hundreds of times, that verse, John 3.16, was the verse that was his focus as he preached the gospel to thousands upon thousands of people. John 3, 16. Just 25 words in total, the verses found on billboards and signs. It's likely the most recognizable verse in, in all of Scripture even. It's been termed the gospel in a nutshell. Because of the way that it succinctly conveys the whole of the message that the entire 66 books of Scripture expound on the motivation for all of god's activity within the world is founded upon his great love for god so loved jesus says his was not a love expressed through a a nice greeting card or a box of chocolates or or even some sort of a gift card The depth of his love, coupled with the need of a fallen creation, necessitated so much more than that. And as Jesus concludes his only recorded conversation with the religious leader, Nicodemus, the very incarnation of God, Jesus himself, outlines the redemptive plan of our Creator. And then following verse 16, following that that famous verse, Jesus contrasts God's love and the judgment of sin. He makes clear that God's love does not result in sin being unimportant or just overlooked. In, In fact, he explains that one effect of Jesus' coming is our inherent propensity to prefer darkness to light. The entry of sin into the world way back in the Garden of Eden implanted within humanity, within the heart of each man and within each woman, a natural inclination to resist light, to resist the light fully initiated, fully brought by Jesus for fear that the darkness within us might be exposed. The illustration of darkness and light, especially during Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, would have been amplified by the context of that conversation. You remember the very first verse of John 3 that we looked at several weeks ago? That Nicodemus 
this presumed leader of the people, this one who would be helping them to understand and helping to illumine their understanding of God. He came to Jesus when it was dark. He came to Jesus at night. So this discussion and even this verse, for God, excuse me, for God so loved the world, probably took place between two kind of shadowy figures with the flickering light of a couple of candles or maybe a couple of torches being the only light in the room as they spoke. And to this teacher, Jesus presented something of a critical moment. Here's a little Greek for you today. Jesus explains that his purpose in coming was not to judge slash condemn. The word for that is krine. Krine. You can hear within that, uh, within that first syllable, cry, C-R-Y, K-R-I, as it is spelled in the Greek. It's the root word for our word crisis, C-R-I-S-I-S in the English. Jesus explains that his purpose in coming was, was not to judge or condemn, but instead to bring light to bring love. And that word for condemnation or judgment has to do with the idea of something being separated. This moment where truth is revealed and and the, the untrue is cut off. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life, though, because of God's great love for us. Nicodemus knew that night, and we know, and it remains true today, that an encounter with Jesus demands a response. It's a moment of decision. But as we discussed with the new birth that Jesus first brought to Nicodemus' attention, you must be born again, he said to the leader of the people. Just as is true with the new birth, This idea of this crisis moment, this decision point. It's a response of trust, not one of striving. The reply to God's gift of love is not some sort of a promise to do better or to try harder. It's simply, as Jesus explained it, to believe. It's a trusting acceptance that what Jesus has said is, in fact, true. That whosoever believes in him. When it comes to belief, there are certainly levels of what that word means, aren't there? I'm going to try a little illustration as I conclude my thoughts this morning. You see this? These are pictures of rappelling ropes. We likely all look at this and at least know that it's a rope. And you can use a rope for a number of things. We would all give intellectual assent. We could agree that the definition or the word that we use to describe this image or this item is rope. That's step one. Does that make any impact on 
my daily life or in yours, just agreeing that this is a rope? Probably not. For some, that's as far as they get with Jesus as it relates to belief. They believe he existed. They may even, they may even be able to grasp that God sent him. They may even say that he was, in fact, God. But that intellectual assent, just the agreement about who Jesus was, does not, in fact, bring change or impact how they live their life or who they are as a person. Now, these ropes have a very special purpose. They're meant to assist you in repelling. Let, let's say, let's say, to continue the analogy just one step further, let's say that you were on top of the building like this guy in the picture is. And you needed to come down. And steps weren't an option. <laughs> and the elevator was broken. But you had the rope. And you had the little clips. Carabiners, is that what those are called? I think so. Those little clips that you wear on your belt to attach you to the rope. All of a sudden, your level of belief in the rope would become much more clear. Could it hold you? Will it allow you to get from the top of the building safely to the ground? Your relationship with the rope in that scenario goes from belief in its existence, just mental assent to what a rope is, to a question of trust, to a question of demonstrating whether you actually believe whether the rope could effectively, safely deliver you from the top of the building to the ground. Your relationship with the rope must go from belief to trust as it relates to the great gift of God's love. Jesus himself, the question, the opportunity, the critical moment is exactly the same. Belief in Jesus, as he described it to Nicodemus, is not a question of his just existence. It's a question of his sufficiency to safely deliver you and me to our eternal home. What better question could we ask ourselves this morning than whether we have taken that step? Has the darkness of our heart begun the process of being transformed? Have we believed that Jesus is sufficient to deliver us to our eternal home? May our answer today and every day be yes, as we accept this great gift of God's love. Amen. The passage that we're going to focus on today from the second portion of the 24th chapter of Luke is one that over the last several weeks, as I've thought about using this passage, and I need to credit actually my sister-in-law, who I'll see later on today. She mentioned this passage to me, and I said, well, Missy, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, because I'm, I'm in this rut of John, <laughs> and, and I don't want to jump all the way to the end yet. What am I going to preach on Easter 
morning, and she was talking to me about reading about this passage, the story of Jesus on the way to Emmaus about a month ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since, and really, especially over the last two weeks. I love this story. I love this story, and I hope, uh, hope you will too. I don't know that I've ever used it as a sermon text. I don't think I've ever used it on Easter Sunday. In fact, I know I've never used it on Easter Sunday. In large part, though, I like it because it gives us a peek that we really don't have anywhere else. It gives us a peek into the thoughts and feelings of those disciples of Jesus between Friday and Sunday. Even though the events happen on Sunday afternoon and evening, they hadn't seen Jesus raised yet. As Bill read, Mary comes back, Mary Magdalene comes back and tells the disciples and the others that the tomb is empty. What do you do with that sort of news when you've seen the man who was laid in that tomb die two days before? We see in this story the transformation the truth of Christ's resurrection brings in the span of just about 20 verses. So hear these words from Luke 24. That day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Oh, sorry. And oh, I lost my spot here. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early, in this, early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman, women had said, but him they did not see. And he, this mysterious traveler who had joined with them, said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them 
gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then, sorry, <laughs> I forgot. Uh, down there at uh, verse 24, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. How's that for a slide to start out on Easter Sunday? Four-letter words. Uh-oh. You know, there, there are a couple of specific four-letter words that were taught relatively early on that polite folk shouldn't use. While I'm not disputing that, I think that the saddest phrase in all of the English language is just three words long. We read it in this passage. Three words long and made up of just ten letters. We had hoped. These three short words drip with the pain of disappointment, disillusionment, and despair. They carry with them and convey a sense of betrayal by our own expectations. They represent something of a crossroad at which a new direction is required as what might have been has been fully extinguished. The first half of this passage we read, or we just read, might be summarized in just those three words. We had hoped. Though not part of the inner group of the twelve disciples, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple, and maybe his anonymity is on purpose. Maybe the idea that the writer of Luke's gospel had is that you and I could place ourselves in the shoe of that unnamed disciple who walked along with Cleopas on that Easter afternoon and, and evening. They were determined that, or they had determined that their hope had been misplaced. And it was time to take the seven-mile walk back home. Let me speculate a little bit. I think it's highly possible that seven days prior they had seen Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the donkey, that event that we commemorated last week. Maybe they helped begin the anticipatory chants of praise that rippled through the crowd as they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And their hope had seemed so well founded. Jesus had all the momentum and the time was just right. But then... But then word came to them late Thursday night from one of the twelve that Jesus was acting a little strange, even, even for Jesus, acting a little strangely. He'd washed their feet. The rightful job of the lowest household slave. He'd, he'd mentioned betrayal. He told Peter that he would deny him. He'd been in the garden, his happy place, so to speak, where he went off to pray. And soldiers came, and Judas kissed him, and he was under arrest. Maybe Cleopas and this anonymous disciple were up all night, Thursday into Friday night, staying on the outskirts of the growing crowd that fast became a mob, and their sleepy eyes soon flowed with tears as the one who seemed to always know what to do was beaten beyond the point of recognition. Their hope was, their hope was that Jesus would somehow out outsmart, outwit, outlast. He'd done it before. 
Remember when he went to his hometown synagogue and proclaimed that the, the word of the prophet Isaiah was fulfilled within their hearing and they, they tried to drive him off of a cliff? And the Bible says he just walked through the crowd and walked away. Cleopas and the anonymous disciple and the other disciples must have just been waiting for that moment to occur again, for Jesus to just slip out of the hands of Pilate and Herod and the Romans and the Jewish leaders and walk away. To avoid the Roman fist, the hope that Jesus would avoid the Roman fist was clearly misdirected. The Roman fist grasped a hammer and pounded the spikes through the hands that had brought healing and the feet that they had followed for several years. Eventually, those spikes were removed and Jesus' limp, lifeless body was laid in a tomb. We had hoped. Sadly, many of us have experienced the unexpected death of someone that we love. Maybe in a violent, tragic, traumatic sort of way. And waves of grief come in ways and at times that we just can't even expect. And while sleep would be hard to come by that Friday night for Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, when you're up all night, hoping that your perceived Savior slips through the hands of the rulers, your body eventually gives way to absolute exhaustion and falls asleep. Well, the next day was the Sabbath, Saturday. Jesus had a lot to say about how that day should be observed. Surely Cleopas and the unnamed disciple wondered, at least in the quiet of their own minds, whether anything Jesus said mattered or should be taken into account any longer. But Jesus did speak about the Sabbath. And they decided they would wait to go home until Sunday. They may have had to pinch themselves as they woke up on Monday and these over-exuberant women burst through the door and announced that the tomb was empty. <laughs> what? To use a term we use today, they they may have in that moment just, just maybe, just maybe began to get their hopes up a little bit. I was talking to Jeff and others last week about that KU game, remember? In that second half when they began to play and you started to think, well, maybe, may, maybe. Now, the issue was that the testimony of a woman in the first century could not even be entered or considered in a legal way. So their testimony wasn't worth all that much. But maybe they waited for Jesus to knock at the door or just come through the door. They, they waited and waited four, five, six hours and hope naturally began to wane. We had hoped. They decided, Cleopas and this anonymous disciple, they decided it was time to go home. Their hope fully dashed. Seven miles they had to walk, and you'd never walk in the dark that far. It was time to go, time to return to their old lives. At least they had the memories of what could have been. We had 
out. What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Whoa! <laughs> they must have thought, was, is this a robber coming up behind us? Who is this person? He, he looked a little familiar, but eh, he, he was just a fellow traveler on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, there's strength in numbers. The time to fill this guy in who was apparently living under some sort of a rock. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's a far cry from Jesus' usual greeting post-resurrection, peace be with you. Instead, I think the English equivalent would be you idiots. He told you this was going to happen. Didn't you listen to the one in whom you hoped? In fact, what he tried to explain to you is found throughout the law and the prophets that he came to fulfill. And their conversation partner, this new, this new guy who joined the two, this trio, completed the last several miles between Jerusalem and Emmaus quickly. It was getting dark, but they'd reached their home. Their traveling companion had given them lots to think about, but it was much too late for him to continue on. Social politeness required that they at least invite him in. And they sat down for supper. And let me really read between the lines and speculate here. Jesus took the bread. Cleopas gasped. As for the first time, he clearly saw the man's hands. Jesus blessed the bread. The anonymous disciple sitting across from Cleopas pointed. He'd seen those hands bless bread that fed multitudes. Jesus broke the bread and Cleopas and his friends locked eyes. Their tears resumed, but those tears were not because of grief. They were tears of the greatest sense of relief that the two had ever felt in their entire lives. And Jesus gave the bread. And at that point, there was no denying it. They saw, they saw as the bread passed from the hands of this anonymous traveler. Two marks. Cleopas and his friends returned their gaze to Jesus, and as Luke writes, their eyes were opened. In the moment their eyes opened, their hope resurrected. They would never be the same again. May our encounter with Jesus this Resurrection Sunday have a similar impact on us. May our travels and our, and our encounters always communicate the message that they shared that very night when they made when they made the dangerous return trip seven miles back to Jerusalem, presumably in the dark. Their message was simple, as is ours this day. The Lord has risen indeed. You <laughs> keep me on pace. You may recall that Several weeks ago, I used the analogy of a supporting actor to try and describe John the Baptist's ministry uh, uh, as it related to Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John. And I even mentioned the Academy Awards. 
And the fact that I never watched the Oscars, and that remains the same. I did pay more attention to a significant event that occurred at the Oscars uh, that's been in the news involving a couple of, uh, of, of actors. All analogies have their limitations, don't they? And that's certainly true of John the Baptist as a supporting actor. I'm going to give it one more try today as we kind of conclude our uh, uh, review of John chapter 3. We're solidly into spring, I think, right? Feels, feels, like we're, we, feels like we've kind of turned a corner. I think we have a couple of cold mornings this week, maybe. But uh, uh, we're beginning to see some flowers bloom, and the grass is, is, is greening up. Baseball starts on Thursday. The boys and I were talking about that on the way uh, here today. Like I said, we'll be celebrating Easter in a couple of weeks. And, and, and the seasons are changing. And we're entering into the time where... Uh, it's very popular to uh, get married. Spring and, and, of course, June. I think June is probably the, uh, the month with kind of historically the, the most weddings. We thought about weddings at my house this week, like I mentioned to you last week. Tuesday, Dana and I celebrated our 14th anniversary. While the time of year that the passage we'll read was spoken can't be known for certain. We don't know exactly what time of year this, uh, this occurred, and, and the traditions associated with a wedding have also changed over the course of 2,000, 2000 years and, of course, different cultures, it seems John would have been just about the perfect groomsman. John is the perfect groomsman. See if you agree with me as we hear these words from John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom uh, you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the, this joy of mine is now complete, for he must increase, but I must decrease. O oh Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may see you. Please open our ears so we can hear you, and we rely on you to open our hearts and minds so we can understand. All this to result in our healing as we turn to you. Amen. I don't know that I ever watched it. I was familiar with a show that was on cable TV primarily almost 18 years ago now called Bridezilla. Taglines for the show included, they don't make veiled, V-E-I-L-E-D, they don't make veiled threats. And then the description was 
women knowing what they want and stepping on everybody in their way prior to their wedding day. I don't think I ever watched it, like I said, but the basis of the show is pretty easy to understand, isn't it? These gals were the type who made the experience of planning and having a wedding. Whoop. Yes, that's fair. See if we can fire it back up. My little, little critter in there peddling my wheel turned off, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, this, uh, this this Bridezilla show it, it uh, portrayed these these ladies who. Uh, were, were, were just difficult to deal with as it related to, to planning and, and having a wedding. In the life of min- and ministry, though, of, uh, of John, he would probably fulfill what we call the, the role of the best man today. The one who was associated there to, with the groom to support the groom. Let me try and set the context a a little bit. Jesus had just begun to embark on his public ministry. And from the opening words of of, uh, John's gospel, it's clear that John the Baptist's primary role in the gospel of John is not that of baptizer, as is true in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Instead, his primary role is that of a witness. A witness. He announces Jesus as the Lamb of God and and bears witness to what he saw at the event of Jesus' baptism. And following that, as we've made our way through John's gospel, we know that Jesus called his disciples, that Jesus then turned water into wine at the wedding there in Cana, that he cleansed the temple, that he discussed matters of the new birth with Nicodemus. And sandwiched in between Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in the dark and then his encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, which we won't get it get to. We're going to take a little break from, from John over Easter and, and so on. But we'll eventually get to John 4. There, there's, this, there's this last kind of encounter and summary of who John was in Jesus' life and in Jesus' ministry. This short passage is introduced by implying that early in his ministry, Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. I actually didn't ever know that the Bible noted Jesus as someone who baptized. But this gospel says that he was baptizing, and he was doing that in pretty close proximity to where John was. And they were doing it concurrently. They were doing it at the same time. Reading between the lines a little bit, it seems that an issue of ritual purification came up where someone was coming to John's disciples and and seems to convey the message that that their take on ritual purification doesn't match quite what Jesus is saying about ritual purification. And and, and the question that's implied or that's begged is, who's right? And John the Baptist's disciples go to John the Baptist and say, well, shoot, man, You, you remember that guy? Across the Jordan, who, you know, initially you pointed him out as the, the Lamb of God. He, he's kind of taken our crowd. And, and, and the people are, are flocking to him. 
and it raised concern for them. This discussion gave John the Baptist one last time, at least in this gospel, to point to Jesus, to point to Jesus as the promised Messiah. And he nailed it. (laughs) He nailed it. Unlike the analogy of the supporting actor that I tried a couple of, of weeks ago, John the Baptist himself creates the analogy. He's the one who, who, who compares himself to the friend of the bridegroom, to the best man. He lays out the rules. He says, Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the groom. Those joining his kingdom represent the bride. And I, I am the friend of the bridegroom. I am the best man. In our culture, the role of the best man is much different. They're kind of the one who, you know, the, my, my, my primary concern and when I do a wedding with the best man is, hey, after the wedding, I need you to sign this license. <laughs> You're the witness. The best man is usually the one who has at least the bride's ring and in his jacket pocket. The best man usually at a reception will give a, a speech, but other than that, their, their role is pretty minimal. In the first century, it was different. Because in the first century, during the betrothal process, remember that from Joseph and Mary's story, uh, when Jesus is, is uh, being born, that they were betrothed to be married. It was about a year-long process where during that year, the groom would prepare the home that the couple would live in. To the, to the time of, or within the time of betrothal, up to the time of, of marriage, the bride would continue to live with her parents while the groom prepared their home. On the day when all preparations had been completed, the friend of the groom, the the best man, as we would maybe refer to him, would go with the groom from the prepared home, walk from that home to the home of the bride. And there was this sense of expectation and excitement that the day had finally come the community would be gathered. And the, the bridegroom, the, the groom, would get to the home of the bride's parents along with the, the best man, along with the, the friend of the bridegroom. And the bridegroom would call out to the bride something to the effect of, all is ready. All is ready. John the Baptist said, As the friend of the bridegroom, I rejoice. I rejoice when I hear the sound of the voice of the bridegroom saying to the bride that all preparations have been completed and all is ready for the marriage of the bride and the bridegroom. The role of the best man the role of the best man was to lead the cheers <laughs> when the moment arrived and the best and the bridegroom would call out to the bride that all was ready. The best man, yay! I, I, think, I think in today's, as I understand the phrase at least, today's vernacular, John the Baptist would be the hype man for the bridegroom. 
the hype man for the couple, that all had been prepared and it was time for the two to be married. He was just the one meant to celebrate and point to the groom, celebrate what this man had done and the relationship that was made possible. The application is clear, I think. While the church is the bride of Christ, we join John the Baptist in pointing to this one who has gone to prepare a place for each of us. As we embark on Holy Week next week and eventually the celebration of resurrection, may the prayer of our hearts be identical to the humble, powerful prayer of John the Baptist. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Amen.